Hi, everyone. Welcome to the table. My name's Debbie Manning. Hi, Charlie. You're back. Um, it's good to be here tonight. Although I have to say, in all honesty, I had a little bit of angst. I was on the schedule for preaching, and um, it's been kind of a hard week, hasn't it? It's been a heavy week, like a stomach ache-inducing week. Soul-wrenching and inhumane and horrific Murder, brutality, massacre, evil. Those words are all true of what happened on the Gaza Strip this past week. Those words are all true, but they're not adequate to describe the atrocities that the terrorist organization of Hamas did to the Israeli people living there in peace. Many of them peacemakers, by the way. But there are other words that are well known to the Palestinian people. And those are words like dehumanization and death, expulsion, eviction from their homes, forced to live in refugee camps, an open air prison, no freedom of movement, no freedom of water, being stopped at checkpoints and treated literally like animals. All these words that I just talked about are true. And the reality is, is that the Israeli suffering and the Palestinian suffering, they are deeply tied together and vice versa. Those are two truths that we do know. And I think for us today and the conversations Matt and I have been having all week is how do we hold these things together? How do we hold together the truth of these horrific atrocities that happened this past week that were committed against the Israeli people. How do we hold that? And then also hold the importance of the backdrop of this, the context of this, right? Because there are centuries, centuries of Jewish people being dehumanized, the anti-Semitic laws, targeted for genocide. And then there's been this 50 plus years of the apartheid policies put upon the Palestinian people in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. Oppression, discrimination, daily terror. And while we need to understand that backdrop, if we're ever going to move forward to some sort of lasting peace, we can understand that backdrop and still stand in that none of it justifies violence. None of it. Not for anyone. So in our grief, in our fear, in our lamenting, in our feelings of helplessness, the question becomes, what do we do? As people who follow Jesus Christ, what is our response when this happens in our world? About um, in 2012, Matt and I at the time were pastors over at Christ Presbyterian Church. You can see this video overlooking the city. It was like this amazing couple of trips we got to take. So the first one was with Christ Presbyterian. We partnered with an organization called Tell Us, a peacemaking organization. Their whole goal was to form communities of peacemakers. And they were all about that there's no us in them, there's only us. And that we always have to take a pro-pro stance because the minute we're pro one side, then we're anti the other side. So we had this opportunity 
to be with all, to spend time with peacemakers, both Israeli and Palestinian on this trip. But about a year later in 2013, we had this chance to take a group from the table with an organization called the Global Immersion Project. Because something was moving in us that as followers of Jesus, we are called to be peacemakers. This isn't a side gig. This is core to who we are as followers of Jesus. And so Matt and I took a group of about, I don't know, Matt, was there like 15 people on the trip? Partnered with Jer and uh, Jer Swigert and John Huckins, who started this organization. And it was an amazing, amazing. I mean, we saw um, the beauty of Israel. We met with peacemakers, both Israeli and Palestinian. We met with ex-Israeli military. We met with settlers. We were invited into the home of a Jewish family and shared a Shabbat meal. We spent a day on the Balada refugee camp. It's about a square mile, meant for five to 6,000 people. I think about 60,000 people lived there when we were there. But we heard about the work of peacemaking that they were doing there. And after um, 10 days of meeting with Muslim clerics, Palestinian Christians, Jewish rabbis, spending time with regular people. You saw the picture up there of that sweet family who invited us over, a Palestinian Christian family living in East Jerusalem, and they invited us for dinner. And we spent the evening with their friends dancing around a fire pit. Of course, their backyard butted up against the wall. But we got to know people, and we got to hear their stories, and we got to see the amazing work they were doing, setting self aside, dedicating their lives, this is that family, to the work of peace. And at a great cost to all of them. We spent some time at a place called the Tent of Nations, and this is Deud Nassar. A Christian Palestinian, his family had owned the land for 100 years. And the settlers were encroaching on the land and they didn't want him here, so he would plant olive trees and in the middle of the night they'd come and chop them down. The IDF would put these huge, huge um, boulders in his driveway. So even when we came, we had to park and then hike in to see him. But he was a Christian Palestinian working for peace. And let me tell you, there were people equally on all sides saying, enough. And I think one of the most powerful um, groups that we met with, and Matt, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but it was a group called the Parent Circle. Both would tell us in Global Immersion, we got to meet with them. And it was started by a, a woman, an Israeli woman who lost her son. He was an IDF soldier, and he decided to sign up for another three years. You know, it's mandatory for three years. And he signed up because he was that presence at the checkpoints who saw the humanity tried to give dignity to the Palestinians crossing the border. So he signed up for another three years, and he ended up getting killed. And then there was a Muslim woman. They were young, young kids living in East Jerusalem. And, and her husband happened to be out one night, and there was a skirmish, and he got killed by some IDF soldiers. And the two of them got together, and they said, enough, enough, we are done with violence. We are human beings. We are people. We want to see and know each other, and we want peace. So I think we left that trip, that trip holding hope, like moving forward into something that could be peace. 
what we understood after spending time having these experiences is that at the core of all of it is when any one group takes an us and them or others, another group of people or a person, that it's that what led to this world and this history we've had, right, of demonizing, dehumanizing, destroying people and communities. And identical to the intent, God's intent for us. Well, interestingly, we are continuing in the book of Mark. My assigned um, text for tonight, I think, actually has something that might help us continue the conversation, step into the what is our response as people who follow Jesus. And we're finishing up uh, chapter 1. And it's a story about when Jesus um, healed the leper. And just a reminder, we've seen Jesus call the disciples. We've seen Jesus heal people, um, call demons out. And Matt talked last week about Jesus going into the woods, spending time, rest, connecting with the divine. But here we are tonight in Mark chapter 1, 40 through 42. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man and he said, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, what's important for this story is there's a whole lot of religious rules, norms, health concerns that would keep this leper from even approaching Jesus. And if Jesus' prior boundary crossing, which we saw when he when he healed Simon's mother-in-law or he touched a woman who wasn't a relative of his, if that, if that was something, him touching a leper was really blowing away those boundaries. Because anyone who was identified as a leper, and just let me say, in ancient times, a leper was anyone with like a rash, ringworm, leprosy. But anyone ad- identified as a leper was the lowest state of existence. In addition to these physical ravages of the disease, the Torah law back then prescribed a very certain life that a leper had to live by. Leviticus 13, 45. The leper in whom the plague is shall wear torn clothes, and the hair of his head shall hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and shall cry, unclean, unclean. And all the days in which the plague is in him, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. Outside of the camp shall be his dwelling. The system in place that was put in place had huge drastic consequences for someone considered a leper. Consequences that were medical, religious, social, even financial. Because the afflicted person was considered to be ritually unclean. They were required to live alone, away from community, and they actually had to keep a distance of 50 paces from someone else. And if the leper touched another person or was touched, that person was considered unclean. And they had to head over to the priest, be examined, and and either be claimed you're clean or you're unclean. A lot of power the priest had. But the afflicted person was also relegated because he couldn't get a job to begging, and often his family had to beg as well. 
And these consequences added a crushing weight to an already horrible life. But he had heard about Jesus' work, and he came pleading. But I think what's interesting is he didn't walk up and say, hey, will you make me clean? He said, if you wish, you can make me clean. So he knows that Jesus is a miracle worker, but he just doesn't ask for it. He's like, if you wish. And it was interesting to read up on this because scholars had all sorts of thoughts on it. But mostly they landed on maybe it was a simple plea from someone who had experienced a life without power or hope. Who knew that every request he made was at the whim or the will of someone else. He doesn't ask to be healed. He asked to be clean. Because he was looking for far more than the cleansing from the disease, but a spiritual and a social cleansing. He wanted to be fully restored in all dimensions. This leper approached Jesus, truly believing that God was working through Jesus and could do this. So he begs Jesus to make him clean. And in this text, and this is important to this conversation tonight, in this text, most manuscripts say that Jesus was filled with compassion. But the NIV that I use tonight as a translation says something different. But most, actually most translations say, being moved by compassion, he reached out and he touched the man. The other translations use the word anger, angry, indignant. So which is it? Because I think it's important to note. So there's a couple of reasons why most scholars actually lean toward that it is anger or indignation, and here's why. Because the first, and just hang in here with me for a quick second, the first principle of translation is that they say that the more difficult reading is probably the accurate reading. Because copyists in those times tended to try to improve the text but with an easier to handle reading. And compassion in this case would have been far easier to handle. They wouldn't have been tempted to reverse it if it was actually indignation or um, anger. And secondly, Matthew and Luke, remember, they got a lot of what they wrote about. Mark was their main source. And when they tell the same story, they actually don't even mention an emotion that Jesus had when he healed the leper. And it leads scholars to believe that if, if Mark would have said compassion, they probably would have used that. But if he used anger, they probably would have left it out. So why would Jesus have been angry? Because everyone across the board agrees he wasn't angry at the leper. That he wasn't angry that, hey, the leper didn't keep 50 paces and he came right up to me. And we know that because he reached over and he touched the leper. He wasn't angry because he was interrupted. Jesus was interrupted all the time. He never responded in anger when he was interrupted. But most scholars think, and this makes sense to me, that Jesus' anger wasn't against the leper. It was against the evil forces, the system that actually made this man a victim. But whether moved by compassion or indignation over the injustices, Jesus reaches out. He says, I will. And that changes everything. His I will is the power of the good news. The power that changes lives. And that in Jesus, this will and power of God is, is revealed in the story. 
What I love about this story is that boundaries are crossed, power is addressed, the unclean becomes clean, and the sick become whole. And Jesus gets in a whole lot of trouble for that. When I think about what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now, and we ask this question about our own response, there is something that we can take from this text tonight. Because here's the thing, and for anyone who's new, like our mission statement is, you know, we are people practicing the ways of Jesus. So what are the ways of Jesus in this text? And I think first and foremost, it's seen. He sees the humanity, the dignity. He sees God in the leper. He sees Imago Dei. And secondly, he's moved, maybe by both compassion and indignation at the system that would cause a man to have a life like this, but he's moved by compassion, by indignation, and he's moved to do something. And in that something, he crosses all the social boundaries, the cultural boundaries, the religious boundaries. And in his, his I will, what he's, what he's moving toward is restoration to wholeness, to reconciliation for all those that are on the margin, the lost, the outcasts. I think that helps us with our response to what's going on right now. Not just in the Middle East, but in our, the city of Minneapolis, in our country, across the world, that this is the call. So this global immersion project that Matt and I have been involved with, and many people from the table have, if you've been around a long time, Nicole, I'm sure you were here when Jer Swigert has come and spoken to us. And they truly are an amazing organization because it's never transactional with them, it's transformational. They have built relationships with peacemakers all over the world for decades now. And I think we have a lot to learn with our partnership. And one of the conversations that Matt and I had is we'd love to get Jer in a conversation with us here. And not in this moment. Jer was actually there with a group when the bombs started going off last Saturday. He got safely home midweek. I think both Matt and I had some text exchanges with him just saying we were praying, grateful for the peacemaking that was going on. And then he had to go radio silent for a while because he was so shattered, so broken. And you can imagine the years of work and this peacemaking that has just gone backwards. But we will stay in relationship with our friend over there. And core to what they do is from Matthew 5, 9, when Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. There's four things that they talk a lot about in their organization, and I think they're things we can use in our families, in our communities, in this conflict, in this war that's going on right now. And the first thing they talk about is see. Everyday peacemakers see the humanity, the dignity. They see God, the image of God in every single person, everybody. And then the call is to contend. Not by getting even. It's not about winning, but it's about getting creative in love. And then immerse. People that are 
peacemakers. They move toward conflict. They move toward conflict, and they do it with tools to heal rather than to win. And then the last piece is restore. It's about knowing one another. It's about sharing tables with former enemies. It's about celebrating the big and the small ways that God is moving in and amongst us all. I think the one thing we can never move away from whenever we're, I can't even think of a good word because what happened a week ago Saturday was so horrible. But when we're feeling destroyed emotionally, not knowing what to do, I think we always have to pause and we always have to remember that there is no other, that every single person is created in the image of God. And it's when we know each other that it changes everything. And I know that all of you know people in Israel, know people in Palestine. You have friends that have friends. And this week I was talking to a friend of mine. For nine months, they had a young man from Palestine live with them. Just this last year, he went home in June. Jihad is his name. He came, he was a senior at White Bear Lake. Here he is when he first came, this Lori and Alan. When he first came, that's what, he was so excited they gave him a white bear for the white bear. Um, for White Bear Lake. There he is in front of the Statue of Liberty. And their time with Jihad, he could not get over. He, oh, by the way, lives in the Gaza Strip. He couldn't get over that he could get on his bike and ride freely down the street. He thought it was amazing that he could go to Target and buy something. He went out for the swim team. He was a straight-A student. He met with the professor of Muslim studies at, McCall at McAllister College and said, we'll give you a free ride. But what he knew was, after going home to the Gaza Strip, he couldn't come back. They grew to love him. He became like a son to them. And when the bombs started hitting in the Gaza Strip, they were sent a picture of he and his grandfather on the, the um, deck of their tiny little apartment overlooking the bombs going off. And the last they heard is that they were packing up. They lived in northern Gaza, and they were heading south. His last words were, this might be the last time I ever talk to you. I love you. These are human beings. The Israelis, the Palestinians. The image of God in every single one of us. So Jer Swigert would say that those deeply, he and others deeply involved in this conflict, that this is a serious moment. This, this is a level above anything that they've ever experienced. It's a severe moment. The geopolitics are different. The government is different. The policies, the stakes are higher. And one of the things that I thought was important for us to hear is that when we have theologies that inform policy, that put one group of people, prioritize some over others, We have used our theology 
we've used and abused our theology because that is not a theology of the God that we follow. This kind of violence will continue to happen as we fail to see the humanity and the dignity in God in every person. Because at the end of the day, what we do know, violence begets more violence. Hate begets more hatred. That no one's going to win here. People will be destroyed. And so what Jer has been saying now is that what we can work on is our messaging. Make sure we're not dehumanizing anybody, demonizing any side or issue. Make sure that we're truly lamenting the violence and in his words, throwing sticks in the cycle of violence. And we continue to deepen our resolve to raise up peacemakers. So what does it really mean for us tangibly? Because we can talk about these things, seeing the humanity in someone. What do we do today, now? I think there's a lot of things here you can do locally. I mean, certainly I believe in praying for the Israelis and the Palestine, Palestinians, praying for peace, but know each other. Who are the Palestinians in our, the Muslims in our community that we might partner with? Or the Israelis and the Matt, I know, has a dear friendship with a rabbi in town that he's been talking to. One of the organizations that Matt and I are part of is something called Isaiah, and it's an organization for faith leaders that are Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and it's all about that knowing each other, holding hands, being about peacemaking. Tammy Moberg, you said some, you had a great idea about calling our representatives Call our representatives tell them we don't want any more money going to war. The tangible things that we can do, have the conversations, and we will continue to have the conversation here. We will continue to move forward. We will continue to be committed to the work of peacemaking. And one of the things that um, Jer Swiger was saying that I really resonated with is we have to choose to be either cross-wielding or cross-bearing people. And there's a huge difference in that. So that's my hope. We've got to take the path of peacemaking. When dominant people oppress others, peace will be impossible. And suffering will be constant. And there will be no way forward to peace. That's heavy and that's hard, but it was a heavy and hard week. And we still are called to stand in it because peacemaking, peacemaking is also not doing nothing. Peacemaking is active. We've got to stand up and denounce evil and violence and war. We also stand with human beings. I'm going to close with this blessing. May the love of Christ compel us. May we see conflict no longer as a problem, but an opportunity for restoration. May we begin to see others the way that Jesus sees them. May we listen longer than feels comfortable. May we choose reconciliation over revenge. And may we be ambassadors of the God of creative love, patience, healing, justice, and peace. Amen.
Thank you, Debbie. Um, man, I should not be up here right now. Thank you, Debbie, for that. I don't know if it's, we, we had this thing this afternoon, Debbie and I and other people in this community where we remembered uh, this beloved member of our community, Chris Nielsen, who died five years ago. One of my favorite people in the world, a mentor of mine, died of an awful uh, bike accident. Or if it's just Debbie <laughs> talking about what's happening right now. Pain is not new to us. Loss is not a new traveling companion for us. One of the things I've been haunted by this past week is I have this memory my first time going over to Israel. Um, I, was, I was with the group called Telos and we were in the West Bank and there was this moment where uh, things were getting pretty contentious and I don't know exactly why, I could not articulate that for you, but it, it, that you could feel like the tension rising when we were at the Aida refugee camp, uh, we heard gunshots just start going off and it was IDF shoulders, our soldiers um, shooting at different individuals who were throwing rocks at them. And I remember standing in the street where the gunfire was going down and this old Palestinian man like pushing me onto the ground going like, just stay down. Like, just stay down for right now. And I've thought about that man a lot this past week and I don't know where he is or where his kids or his family, but those words just stayed down have resonated with me since Hamas entered into Israel last week. Two weeks ago, was it last week, right? You know, when Christ was betrayed on the night before he was killed, I love how the Gospel of John goes out of its way to say, I'm not just going to tell you what, that, what went down. I'm going to give you the theological interpretation of what went down. John says that Jesus took off his shirt and wrapped it around his waist and dropped down onto his knees and started serving those who turned their backs on him. Those who would eventually like serve him up into the empire's hands and lynch him. What a powerful word that is because Jesus doesn't resist. He washes the dirt off those toes. He scrubs between them. He cleans those who will curse him. He just stays down. He doesn't need to win. Jesus, in our tradition, we believe he is the son of God. Jesus, as the son of God, says that peacemakers are the children of God. When we look at how the Son of God lived and how the Son of God died, and we think about what does it mean to be a peacemaker, please do not expect to win in this stage of life. Expect the cross. Expect defeat. Believe what Paul says when he says that in our weakness you are strong. That there is something beautiful breaking open that we don't know how to quite yet name about not needing to be the top dog in town. After washing those toes, Jesus gathers with those guys around tables and he grabs the loaf of bread that was sitting at the center of the table and he knows what's coming. There's a lump inside of his throat, but he says it all the same. In the future when I'm not here, take this bread and remember this is my body 
broken for you. When you all get together again, be it in an upper room, in a small church, wherever the context may be, remember me, remember the path that I put before you. You say you're a follower of Jesus, this is what following Jesus looks like. Same way he grabbed the bottle of wine and he filled it into a cup and he lifted it up and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you gather as a people, if you're gonna claim my name, this is your game, this is what you're about. Whenever you gather, remember me, the bread, the wine, the path, the call to be peacemakers, to live into your true identity as children of God. And so as a church, in our broken, often misdirected ways, we try to adhere to that instruction and be about that path. And we gather and we take in the bread and the wine. And we want to invite you to do the same. It's juice, not wine. You can come down the middle when the time is appropriate. Before we get to that, uh, would you stand with me? And can we just say the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? <sighs> our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.